Phil. How are you doing today? Great. How's it going? It's going really well. It's, I'm so happy to be having this conversation with you. And for folks who don't know, I don't know Phil that well. <laughs> so this is really going to be a great opportunity for me to get to know you even better um, and for the world to know your greatness as an unapologetically Black unicorn. So I first met you virtually in this virtual world in the age of the pandemic through Faces and Voices of Recovery. Can you talk a little bit about what you do there? I can, but before I do that, I just want to say how great the title UBU Unapologetically Black Unicorns is. I, I was in love with it the first just the first time I saw it. I thought that was a that was a great name. So I I'm in love with that. Yay. So Faces and Voices of Recovery, I'm the chief operating officer there. Uh, we are an advocacy organization. Our focus is advocacy on peer recovery supports and ultimately bringing the message of recovery to the general public that people can and do recover and that we support that across the country. Yeah, I've uh, been um, involved with FAVOR, as I call it, FAVOR for short, right? Since I was running a peer-run organization in Los Angeles, Project Return Peer Support Network, where we uh, basically were contracted with the Department of Mental Health. And we started doing some work with SAMHSA around the Voice Awards. And I really wanted to show how mental health and substance use could partner better together. So I brought in Favor as a partner uh, to sponsor some of the things that were happening um, at the Voice Awards and have really worked towards ensuring that, you know, there isn't a separation between mental health and substance use. We need to be working together uh, to support people in need. So one of the things in the addiction and recovery world that I sort of notice is this change over time of how the public and even how public policy addresses substance use disorders, substance use conditions. And I don't know if you can speak to kind of how, you know, before it was the war on drugs and now it's an opioid epidemic. How did, how did, how do we understand that as people of color? Like, let's be unapologetic yeah. about it and kind of speak to that in, in ways that it affected us differently, you know? Yeah. And I mean, I can speak from a very personal level on that. I'm a, I'm a person in recovery specifically from, I think what these days is lovingly referred to as stimulant use disorder or psychostimulant use disorder. I believe back in the day when George Bush was beating on his desk and talking about crack, they didn't refer to it as psychostimulant use disorder back then. Mm. So from a personal level, my navigating the pathway of recovery from the war on drugs to now has been challenging, to to say the least. Uh, I can't say that there's not a, a little bit of disdain that I have for sort of the the way that it has been, the way it was approached then versus the way it's approached now. I'm grateful as a recovery advocate, I'm grateful for any support to people being in recovery, but it's just as I hear people talk about addiction and substance use disorder, however they describe it these days, it, it's hard for me to hear some of the compassion that's described today when there was outright belligerence and malevolence directed at me when I, when I was in the throes of a substance use disorder. So it's, it's, it's a challenge. And, and the thing is, let's keep it real. A lot of that was, was racially motivated. Yeah. And we know for a fact, based on the notes from uh, the Nixon administration, that the war on drugs was 100% 
uh, motivated by race. And so there's a challenge there. And I think like, like I said, I'm supportive. I'm supportive of where we are now, but I'm not, I'm also not blind. I certainly wouldn't want where we are now to leave behind people of color. Right. I think some of the work that I'm seeing, you know, people in recovery, specifically, um, you know, people of color who are in recovery, doing the work in communities to make sure that folks um, have the message that, yeah, recovery is possible so that, you know, we aren't left behind or that there is there aren't any disparities for for folks of color. One of the things that I, I get to see in, in my role at Faces and Voices, I'm blessed with the opportunity to get around to different recovery communities around the country. And one of the things that I've seen in some of those communities is the messaging around there being hope for people with opioid use disorder and a pathway out and a recovery pathway like that, that message is ringing out. But I I spent some of my, I've lived a lot of places, but some of the time I've spent in Houston and when I go around in the fifth ward and the third ward in Houston, there's still a lot of psychosimulant use disorder present. And the message of recovery from that is not as powerful or uh, it is not as broadly broadcast in Mm. the same way. It's almost Mm. as if that part has been forgotten, but the opioid use disorder thing has, has kind of taken center stage. And again, I'm not, I'm not saying this begrudgingly. It's just, it's an, it's an observation of what's going on on the ground. Mm -hmm. So I try and make sure that we're talking about use disorders and that recovery is possible from all of them, that it's not, it's not specifically where medication is available or I'm not a, again, there's not a FDA approved medication for uh, stimulant use, but I'm living proof that it can be done and and that it, that it's possible and, and, and that a recovery life can be turned into, into something good. Yeah. And I think it's so important to be the evidence for, for people, because I think, um, you know, our peer work is, uh, so critically important, you know, as a person, you know, so myself, people know that I've been, I was diagnosed with schizophrenia and, you know, that is a diagnosis for people of color that, especially for black folks, <laughs> we tend to be overdiagnosed with schizophrenia, not yeah. to say that we have it, don't have it. I'm, I, that's not really the point, but the point really is that once given the diagnosis, it's so important for people to know that recovery is possible, that, you know, uh, achieving life goals is possible rather than thinking somebody you've been given a diagnosis that is sort of filled with doom and gloom and not being able to get on with your life and all that sort of thing, which is what many of us are told when we're given a diagnosis. And like when I was first diagnosed, people said, oh, you know, you need to drop out of school. You need to go on public benefits. Um, You will always need to live in the care of someone else, whether it be your parents or somebody else. And um, never forget, I was embarrassed to tell my parents about it. Right. And so when I finally told them uh, kind of what I was being told, my dad was like, oh, hell no. My mom was like, what are you talking about? (laughs) He's like, no, 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 no. This is like, no, you can do whatever you want, baby. You know, we are here for you. We will support you. We'll give you everything that you need in order to uh, make sure that you do that. You can do whatever you want in life and we will help you get there. Right. So um, when, and, and so when I was listening to him, I was like, I've heard this before. Where have I heard this? And that's what we were told in school. 
Oh yeah. no, you know, you don't need to go to college. You know, you, you go ahead on baby, you go ahead and be that maid. I was like, be a what? <laughs> <laughs> right. I don't. <laughs> right. You know, it's something, something interesting just happened. And I, I, I point this out because we're, we're on unapologetically black unicorns, mm-hmm. but in both cases. So you described a schizophrenia and you made an equivocation. You said not that black people don't have this. And I described stimulant use disorder and I said, oh, but you know, it's, you know, I'm, I'm grateful for what's happening with opioid use disorder. But I think in both cases, we equivocated almost. And, and for me, I can't say, I don't know why you equivocated, but in my case, there's a, there's a part of my brain. And I think this just comes from living in corporate America and living in a world that is, that has a dominant culture that I feel like whenever I say something that is unapologetically pro-black, I have to make this equivocation that says, well, yeah, it's okay for white people. I'm not saying anything bad about white people. I have to almost have to like make permission mm-hmm. or make an apology for saying something that is unapologetically black. And and I want to, so I want to not undo that, but I just want to call it out that I noticed yeah. it within myself that I was doing that. And the truth of the matter is in the nineties, it was bad for people of color, specifically black people. And now it is different. And yes. I believe one of the motivating factors was race, period, full stop. Yes. And I am going to snap, snap, double down and say, totally agree. So I think what happens in mental health, and I think this is across the board for people of color, white people, whatever, that sort of in, in, our, in our peer and consumer survivor movement, a lot of people experience trauma. And so to be diagnosed with something that may be trauma-based and um, pathologize a natural reaction to some traumas that have happened in people's lives is where we start to say things about the diagnosis. Not that you, you could have it, maybe you don't have, you know, that kind of thing. I guess that's why I do it. And also, I don't, you know, I don't want people to, I don't know, there was a time when we, when, when the conversation, it still is about use of medication. And I'm sure you might find this with MAT as well, medication assisted treatment that, you know, some people choose not to uh, utilize medication and try other ways to work towards recovery, but then it becomes sort of this, um, you know, if you're not doing it that way, then there's something the matter with you, right? You know, anti-med, anti-psychiatry. And I try to sit right kind of in the center of, I know what I believe for myself. And I also know that I can't impose my belief of what worked for me per se on other people. I have to meet other people where they are. So sometimes that's why I'm doing that little caveat too. You know what I mean? Yeah, I I, I understand. And I, um, and I know this isn't the this isn't a time in the world to, I, I'm, I am pro medicine. I, I think medicine is good for people and I'm not talking about psychiatric meds. I just, I mm-hmm. think in general, uh, you know, healthcare is good for humans, right? Yeah. Uh, specifically for people of color, we've been uh, chronically under utilizing health, health systems for a variety of reasons, comma, and it's not weird that black people in specifically might have some questions about psychiatric medications, given the history of psychiatry and psychology in America, as it relates directly to black people. 
Yeah, exactly. I think these are the kind of conversations that we have to think about as, you know, treatment providers, our treatment providers have to think about, peers have to think about it sort of uh, in the cultural context. And sometimes I find that doesn't happen in the peer movement because we are not in the majority in the peer movement. We're certainly not in the majority in the peer movement um, as peer leaders. So these are the kind of things I'm always trying to bring to the forefront. And one of the reasons why I decided to do the podcast so that, you know, our, our voices, our faces, and we'll talk about that for you, <laughs> that is, you know, uh, are, are, are heard about the work that we're doing that really is contextualized in our experiences as Black and Brown people in mental health and substance use field. So yeah. tell me a little bit about all of that and your world of uh, substance well, use just on that one subject and I, I won't, I won't go down a, a rabbit hole on this, but I, I just got off a conversation and this, this has to do with how pervasive some of this stuff is just got off a conversation with uh, our graphic designer and we had a, a social media graphic that it's a great graphic. It, it, it demonstrates people talking on phones or communicating via zoom or whatever. So it's a lot of faces and boxes and it's, it's cartoonish. So like people don't really have facial features but a couple of people looked at it and looked at the graphic and said, that's great. And it is a great graphic. And I looked at it and immediately noticed there was not one face on there that looked like mine. Yeah. So my immediate response was like, it looked like there was no African blood in any of the people mm-hmm. on the picture. And it, it ended up being kind of a thing with us, like almost like a DEI moment for myself and the other people on the team. And we're, you know, Faces and Voices, we are the most diverse national recovery organization mm-hmm. on the planet. Not that there's like 20 of them, by the way, but there's, <laughs> there, there are some, but we are, I mean, we are, we're super diverse. We have lots of different types of people in our organization. And even still just the pervasiveness of, of kind of the erasure of black people it's present everywhere. So it's yeah. just, it just something about what you were saying triggered that in me. It just made me think about how vigilant we're required to be. So that, that's, that's that. Yes. What we do at Faces and Voices and the work that we do there, it, it is, for me, it's absolutely a labor of love, right? So I found recovery and uh, I found it through mutual aid groups, but almost immediately I understood that the importance of community and the importance of a group of people around me with similar goals or similar aims was what was making the difference. And when I say immediately, I'm a slow learner. So like a couple of years, (laughs) right. It wasn't, it wasn't, uh, it wasn't that day. Um, Mm -hmm. But at faces and voices, we, we try and promote that in, in a little bit more of a structured way, not necessarily through mutual aid, although that's a fine pathway to recovery. It's the one that I, I have, but we, we support all pathways to end of recovery. And so that looks like that looks like different things, right? On the Hill, it looks like us educating lawmakers about the importance and the need for peer support in communities that looks like us supporting recovery community organizations, which are community-based organizations that deliver peer support services. It looks like that. On the web, it looks like social media graphics that are inclusive and supportive of of recovery. It looks like our stories have power messaging training where we talk to people about how to talk about recovery. Like you'll notice when I introduced myself, I'm a, I said, I'm a, I'm in recovery. I didn't say I'm a, a junkie or an addict or, a, or mm-hmm. any of the other uh, sort of less useful 
language components that people use. So, so we do, we try and do this in a lot of different ways mm-hmm. at Faces and Voices. Uh, we also collect data to try and support the idea that peer support works. And mm-hmm. spoiler alert, it does. <laughs> spoiler alert. And yep. you're late to the party if you don't know what does, right? So <laughs> right. <laughs> welcome to our party. Uh, peer support works and we have the evidence to validate that. So right. um, one of the things that, that you said that I wanted to chime in on was recovery month. It's recovery month. Yes, yes, yes. So you all have a critical, pivotal how many different words could I use to say that without you, we wouldn't be doing some things that um, would happen for this country in recovery month. So can you, can you talk a little bit about uh, recovery month and what it is and what y'all do and how people can be involved, all that? Yes. So September is a uh, national recovery month and our role has, has been over the past two years since the uh, departure of SAMHSA from this role has been to act as a convener and, and really more as a backstop for people that are celebrating recovery month around the country. So we've, we've got a website and a variety of social media platforms that are promoting these recovery based activities. Now you and I both know recovery happens year round. So it's not that it only happens in September but there are celebrations and walks and proclamations and city council meetings and state legislatures that participate. There are all these things that are happening during this month. And we have, we have uh, collected all of that and placed it on a site, nationalrecoverymonth.org. And all of that information is there. Um, and for, for people that are new to recovery month or just, just getting started, maybe aren't familiar with us, if you go to that site, you can easily upload your event and put information there. And I believe the the Facebook and Twitter handles are also National Recovery Month, yes. so it's it's pretty easy to find. But it's we're, we're super excited about it because it is a it's a celebration of something that it's sort of the core of our organization is is that recovery is possible and that it works. Yeah, and 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 I think the most important thing is it's not about us. Right. And they, they told me that coming into mutual aid early on. Right. They said, it's not, it's not about you, Phil, Um, (laughs) but it's uh, it's not about us. It's about the communities that are doing this work all over the country. And on the 30th is international recovery day. That's, that's about the whole world. There's faces and voices of recovery UK. There's recovery Africa. There, There are other organizations we're connected with around the world that are doing recovery work in, in various shapes and sizes. And so this, the whole month is like a big party for us. Yes. Amazing. And a a party well-deserved and especially to help our communities um, see that again, recovery is possible. Right. How have you um, advanced ensuring that people of color, especially black folk um, have space to talk about our needs, particularly in the recovery community. And here I'm talking about Black Faces, Black Voices in particular. So Black Faces, Black Voices really began last year. And surprisingly, this this happened prior to the George Floyd event. But just over, over my time at Faces and Voices, and I guess I'd been there two years at that point, I really started to notice a need for safe places for Black people to talk about the Black recovery experience. 
One of the things that happens in mutual aid is that there's a the storyline is that we're kind of like I said earlier, you're not that big a deal, but there's a storyline of being you're all kind of the same. And what I what I started to notice, and I think this happens just over over a period of time in recovery, is what I started to notice is that that, that that's not exactly true. The the experience of a black person trying to achieve recovery and maintain recovery is different. It's not, it's not exactly the same. So black faces, black voices became kind of a, a spot for professionals uh, in the recovery space to talk about that journey and talk about what that was looking like in their communities. Because much like I spoke earlier about some of the differences in the way stimulant use disorder versus opioid use disorder was being treated and discussed we, we found that there, there really just wasn't, there weren't a lot of safe spaces for that and, and there needed to be some. And wow. so the, the group came together and there are 25 or so members of this group and there have been different fields, everything from community-based recovery organizations to uh, other entities that, that are interested in, in promoting Black recovery. And it's been really powerful to see all of us come together and, and know that we exist. And there's something just in knowing that there are other black people in the same field doing the same work and, and trying to bring recovery to, to their respective communities. I want to go back to one thing too, if you don't mind, Um, might be beating a dead horse, but I don't think the horse is dead. And I don't think people even understand the horse. I mean, let's talk about the war on drugs here for a second and the impact it had uh, and still has on the Black community when we shifted from the war on drugs to opioid epidemic. The war on drugs really said that people with substance use disorders, whatever that's, you know, crack, whatever you want to call it. I I didn't even realize they had changed the name. I I didn't even know that. That's brand new information to me. But um, people were criminalized. Yeah. And laws were made and and policy was made that affected disproportionately black and brown folks. And I see how that is still pervasive today, even though the language has shifted, the issues still persist in communities of color. I uh, was in Philadelphia and a peer leader, um, Evan Figueroa, took me Mm -hmm. to the largest open air opioid market in the country. And I'm from Philly, so I had not seen this area. And I was like, what in the good God name? I mean, trunks open, you know, it was like the drugstore, like literally the drugstore in somebody's trunk across the street from a, I believe it was a, it was either a veterans affairs or a community, like a community um, substance use treatment program all blocked off with all of this. The, the, the treatment program had all of this uh, fencing around it, Sure, <laughs> you know, a gazillion guards. It's like, you really want to walk in there? How can you even walk in there? Right. What the heck? How do, what are we going to do here? Well, and, and I want to, I want to make sure that I, I assume that people were talking about crack when they said psychostimulant use disorder they may only be talking about meth but i just i just kind of hopped in the bus uh hop on that bus. then people were talking about <laughs> psychostimulants but yeah yeah um so it could be that it could be the crack is is outside of that designation as well so so again i live in minnesota north minneapolis is probably the probably the greatest concentration of of black people in in minnesota there is still a hyper criminalization 
not that I want to beat up on Minnesota, but our marijuana arrests out, outpaced the nation. I think we may not be number one anymore, but we were, we were recently number one in mm. the, in the racial disparity between marijuana arrests. Wow. So if, if you were, if you were a black person in Minnesota and found to be in possession of marijuana, you were something like nine times more likely to actually be arrested for that. It's not something that can be fixed. I think with a simple, just a simple policy change, like, cause the, the, even, even with legalization of, of marijuana or legal cannabis, whatever you want to call it, even in that way, there are still injustices that, that have not been fixed and can't be fixed with a single stroke of a pen. Mm-hmm. The other side of that is that also in North Minneapolis, people are dying of opioid overdoses because opioids have made their way into the black community and not, let me, let me rephrase that. They haven't made their way. Synthetic opioids have made their mm-hmm. way into the black community in a way that they probably weren't before, mm-hmm. but that has sort of a double whammy, right? Because, because of the stigma and criminalization associated from the crack years and the war on drugs, black families seem to be less likely to confront addiction that this is something that we're seeing. And I'm hearing this from like, we're talking about black faces, black voices. As I talk to people around the country, we're not seeing the same number of vigils for overdose in the black community that we see in the white community. And we think we don't, I don't, I don't have a double blind placebo controlled study to prove this, but anecdotally, we think part of that has to do with the black community's attitude toward admitting illegality. Right. So talking about my kid as someone who breaks the law is something that is that is far more dangerous to us just as a as a community. Like we don't that's not as something that we want to be as open about Mm -hmm. as other communities. Right. To kind of to your your discussion about the open air drug market. I wonder what an open air crack market would have looked like. Like, I wonder how many SWAT teams would be sitting around for that. Yeah. I don't have an easy answer and I don't think there is, but I think that there are so many dimensions to the war on drugs that it is not just about changing the laws. There's, there's a lot of work that needs to be done. So like when a war is over, there's typically mitigation work that gets done about what happened in the carnage of the war. And I think that's what we need. We need mitigation work. First of all, the war has to end, right? Which I don't, I don't know that I have evidence that that is the case, it, it has ended for some people, but I think it still mm-hmm. exists for, for black people. Mm-hmm. So first we have to stop that, right? That's something that my guy, my mentor in the mutual aid group told me uh, if I was doing something dumb to stop that. So first got to stop that. Mm-hmm. Then we need to look at mitigation. How do we, how do we fix that? Where's the, what is the thing that we need to do to try and straighten out all the damage? I think part you gave part of the answer, which I think is visibility of the issue and being clear about what the issue is um, and how it's grounded in in um, race and discrimination. Let's just be yep. let's use the words. <laughs> um, so yep. uh, I think that's that's the the first step. Is I don't know that people see it or understand it in this way globally, especially when we talk about it in the recovery uh, community. Like you said, it's it's very interesting to me and the re- the recovery community. Uh, that does not happen in mental health is when people talk about, I'm a person in long-term recovery. I haven't used this, that, or the other, the, the drug of choice for, and they say how many years, everybody claps. 
yeah, you know, they're clapping. Um, if I say I'm a person with a diagnosis of schizophrenia, I, it's hard to say I'm in recovery from, I don't understand how that works. I could say it, I'm in recovery from schizophrenia, I suppose. It doesn't roll off my tongue the same way. But if I say I'm a person who was given a diagnosis of schizophrenia and now I'm a leading mental health expert, et cetera, et cetera, I don't get any claps. No, no, <laughs> it's like, it's like crickets. Right. People go, whew. <laughs> yeah, <woo. laughs> you know, Thank God she's better, you know, but there, there's nothing. There's like this silence right. and it's like, do you know how hard I work? Like, give me some, like, right. you know, come on, give me some snaps, oh. give me some claps, give me some something. And I wish that was something in our community that we could um, celebrate when, when people are in recovery. But the bigger point, because it's not about me, the bigger point of course <laughs> is this, this idea that our communities can't vigil. You know, they can't have vigils. They can't do things in the same way because, and again, I think you're, you know, there may be an assumption being made here, but it's, it's a very strong point about there's a difference when there's something about the illegality of it all. Yes. And that, absolutely. that for us, you know, we'll land in prison. We'll land in treatment. We'll land in prison. That is <laughs> very correct. different, very different. And it's, it's sub Rosa too. It's not, I don't, cause I, someone asked me that question. Cause I, so I, like I said, I live in Minnesota. There are all sorts of vigils here all the time for people that overdose. And someone said, how come, how come black families don't care about their people that overdose? And, and it, it struck me at the moment. Like I know for a fact that black families care about when, when people die, I'm in a black family, people have died. I know we care. Right. Yeah. So I, I, I kind of set aside my immediate, sort of visceral response to that question and examined it for what it actually was. And from that person's perspective, they knew that black people were overdosing. They wanted to understand why they didn't see vigils. And I, I I can't prove it, but I, I think that that's a thing. I think that gathering around someone who did an illegal act and saying, we, we understand this person did an illegal thing and we're, but we're here to celebrate their life that is different in the black community. And it, it is, it is a, it is about centuries of relationship or a century and a half of relationship with a hostile police force and a few centuries of relationship with, with hostile captors wow. just to keep it real. That's what it is. So. And there's the unapologetically black unicorn drop. Thank you very much. That is, <laughs> <laughs> you know what I'm saying? It's like, we, we have to have these unapologetic conversations. We have to, people cannot listen. They can, they can do whatever they want. Like once it's out there in the ether, they can choose to listen to the podcast or not, but it will never be said that we didn't have the conversation. Right. And I think that's the important thing. And I'm hoping people are kind of taking note and sort of thinking about, Hey, what are some things that we can be doing to, as you say, stop that? Like, what do we need to do to stop all? And I say, stop the madness. Like, how do we stop all this madness really? So as we sort of um, think about what can people do to stop, stop this, stop some of the madness, what might be some advice or action? Like I always like to leave people with something that they could do. And our listeners vary from people with lived experience, people in recovery, general public providers. What are some things that uh, you think our, our listeners could do as an action step? I think specifically, and this is, this is specifically to, our listeners that are in the black community, because I think we, we, we start in, in our own village. Right. And I recognize that we don't always all live in a single insular village, but I think for us in our, in our community, it is important that 
we begin to identify and call out substance use disorder and mental health components when we see them and not, and when I say call out, I don't mean in a negative way, but early identification and at least asking if there are resources available, because I think that we are, we're under identifying these problems in our community. And I think it's one of the reasons that kind of leaning back to the overdose thing, it's one of the reasons that these things make it to the crisis proportions that they have is that we're not looking for, for these challenges early on. I had a, I had a, the reason I'm thinking of this is I had a conversation with someone about one of my daughters talking about possibly being depressed. And I, I, I made a joke. I said, well, th- this is the first generation of kids that can actually first generation of black kids that can actually be depressed. Like I didn't like when I was a teenager, I didn't know I could be depressed. I didn't know that mm-hmm. was allowed for, I didn't know that was allowed for young black men. I thought mm-hmm. I just, I had to either be hard or soft, right? Like I didn't know mm-hmm. that <laughs> I didn't know yeah. that depressed was a, was a thing. And it turned out that I was clinically depressed and luckily I was mm-hmm. able to get some help early, early on. But I, I just, I, I really, and I know that is a bit of an abstract concept, but I think if you are listening to this and you have questions about whether or not a loved one is perhaps down the path with substance use disorder, please talk about it. The worst thing to do is to turn a blind eye. Yeah. So, so talk about it, see if we can get some help. And if nothing else, I personally, I've got a lot of contacts, right? So feel free to Mm -hmm. reach out and we can, we can get you hooked up with somebody somewhere. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, um, you know, think that is just such a powerful message to, to leave people with and a call to action for folks. And, you know, we'll double down on that, two claps up on that, two snaps up on that, because I think being able to uh, be able to ask for help. Um, and, and that's tough because it's not, whether it's about depression or anything, it's kind of like, you know, we have strong black woman syndrome. We have strong black man syndrome. Asking for help may be for us perceived as a sign of weakness when we always have to show up strong. And so sometimes being able to do that is, is tough. And then knowing where to do that, where you feel safe is also another tough thing. So thank you for offering up uh, yourself as a resource to people. I think that's uh, uh, really amazing. So I want to thank you for spending this time with me and uh, really looking forward to all of the different events and celebrations during recovery month and hoping our black communities, brown communities, everybody can join in in the celebration of recovery month. And remember recovery is every day, not just the month of September. (laughs) So we celebrated September. We can celebrate every day uh, in the health, the most healthiest of ways, of course. And uh, so thank you for joining me. Excellent. I'm really, really appreciate the opportunity. Glad to be here. All right. So for our listeners, you know where to find us next week and hope you all listen in next week. Thanks so much.